Matthew chapter 16, this is the ninth Sunday that we have talked about this chapter, and I pray that these two months have been beneficial to you as we dig down into what it means to be the church. Not those things about the church that, that change when a new pastor comes to town or a pastor leaves town, and not those things that change depending on who's running the children's ministry or, or who's, who's on the deacon board, but those things that never should never change about the church. Uh, what is our DNA? And we've looked at this interchange between Jesus and his apostles and Jesus and Peter at times to see what those things are. And each week we talk about uh, what the church is. And that we always start off that the church is a community of people. And then we switched it a couple weeks ago to a community of believers who do something or are something. Last week we focused on that the church is a community of believers who eagerly and expect the king to come. And we talked all about heaven, and we talked about how we long for that place, uh, and what it looks like, and, and the way it is described to us, uh, and how even the, the, the beautiful descriptions that we have of what heaven is going to be like fall short of what it's going to be like when we truly and, and personally experience it. And we talked about how before that can happen, before we can experience heaven, our final home in the new heaven, new earth, that something has to happen or someone has to come, and that someone is Jesus. And we talked about how when he comes again, that, that you're going to know it. He's not going to just send Michael or Gabriel and the angels to come and complete this. He is coming himself. He's going to come with his, his heavenly army. He is coming personally, and he is coming physically, and he is coming visibly. You will know it. You will not miss it. It'll be impossible for you to miss it. You won't, you won't wake up and, and wonder what happened. You will know. Scripture tells us that it's going to be visible. It's going to be worldwide. It describes it as like lightning and thunder. You're going to know it. You cannot miss it. It's going to be imminent. In that, in that it means it's coming now or it's coming soon. And in the grand scheme of things, soon is not that long. When you, look at, uh, when you look at how long we have in eternity, either eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, right, soon makes 2,000 years seem like a breath of air. He is coming, and it will be final. And on that day when he comes, uh, there will be no choices. There will be no freedom uh, or opportunities to profess him as your Savior. It will be final. For the believer, that's going to be a good day. We may, we may tremble a little bit, but it's in fear and awe and reverence and worship because that's the day of our salvation. That is the day of our redemption. That's the day that our glorious hope becomes real. It's a day of reward. We may not know it's coming, but we won't be caught off guard because we're watching for it. We're living in expectation of it. For the unbeliever, though, it's going to be a sad day. It's going to be a terrible day because it's a day of judgment and a day of godly wrath poured out. It's going to sneak up on these, these individuals like a thief in the night because they're so consumed with everything else that's going on around them. And we reminded you again last week that, that the, that's the reason, the reason that Jesus coming back is the reason that we live this life in sort of, on sort of two fronts. One, we live with urgency as if we expect him to come back now. And we live with purpose, just in case God decides to hold him back a little bit longer. But that is how we live. 
And that's, where we, that's what we anticipate. This week, we want to dial it back a little bit. We want to focus uh, on the kingdom that is here now because the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of heaven is not just something off in the distant future. We live in the kingdom of God now. And so for the last time, at least uh, for in, the, in the short term, let's read Matthew 16 together. The last two verses. Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The words of Jesus Christ. That last verse has caused a lot of issues over the millennia. There are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. A lot of different explanations have been thrown out for this. Um, but when you look at this, right, I think there's a, a, defi- a, a way of looking at it that makes sense in the context of this scripture. So throughout the, throughout the millennia, though, throughout the years, uh, some people have thought that Jesus here is talking about the fact that since he is saying this right now, that the kingdom has already come. And in a sense, that is correct. Because with Jesus coming, the kingdom has come. But I think it's more than that. Some people have said that that Jesus here is talking to what happens next, at least in the pages of our Bible, in chapter 17, where you have this supernatural experience, occurrence, of the transfiguration. Where Jesus goes up on a mountain, and Peter gets to see this, and we see these Old Testament heroes show up. Some people think that he's talking about that that some people will live long enough to see this happen. Some people think that they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, that, that some people are going to live to see the resurrection of Jesus. True. Some people think that they're talking here about Pentecost, that day after the ascension where thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And yes, there will be people here who will live to see that happen. Some people think that they're referring to an event that happened in 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem, that that people would live for another 35, 40 years until they were able to see the fall of the holy city, Jerusalem. Still, some people think that Jesus is referring to the fact here that when he's going to go, but he's going to come back soon to finish everything, to, to, to return a second time, in which case Jesus is wrong because he hasn't returned a second time yet. And I'm pretty sure that everybody who read those words or heard those words, spoke, those words spoken are dead. Or, and this is my favorite non-true reasoning of this, is that some people believe that here, Jesus is referring to the immortals. You know what I mean when I refer to immortals? It's not like Marvel comics or anything like that. If you remember back to the Old Testament, there are, or DC comics, I'm sorry if I got things wrong there, offended somebody. But if you remember back to the Old Testament, there are two people who didn't taste death, Elijah and Enoch. They didn't experience a physical death, they were taken to heaven. Some people think that he's talking here about those immortals. Well, I think, and I believe, that a more plausible, a more possible answer takes some of those into consideration and includes some of those and definitely excludes some of those, but you have to look at the context. 
Now, anytime we go to study Scripture, the first three rules of studying Scripture are context, context, context. Don't go to a section of Scripture, a verse of Scripture, and immediately yank it out and just use it however you want to, uh, void of whatever, wherever it came from. Right? Look at the context of where it is taken in Scripture. So when we look at this, I believe that this section of Scripture, this weird thing that Jesus says, some of you are not going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, refers to a manifestation, a realization of Christ's kingly reign exhibited through the resurrection and a whole host of things. Because think about what happens after the resurrection. You have the church explode. You have Pentecost where thousands of believers come to Jesus Christ. You have men and women who are faithful and obedient who take the message of the gospel to their ends of the earth in spite of what persecution may, be, may come their way. And you see the church just explode. So when Jesus says here, there are some standing here. I believe that he is saying that there are some standing here who will see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed throughout the Roman world and this rich harvest taken in with converts to Jesus Christ. They get to see the amazingness of the resurrection. Some will see the ascension. Some will be present at Pentecost. Some will, will travel to, to northern Africa and over uh, further into Syria with the spread of the gospel and just see the church explode in a good way. That's what I believe, the context, and everything around here is telling us. And if you take in, uh, into account the other gospels, especially the other synoptic uh, gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I, I believe that that's what they are talking about. And if you think about the kingdom you should think about the kingdom because Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. So if the son of God, our redeemer, our savior thinks a lot about uh, the kingdom, we should probably think about it a little bit too. So we need to have a definition of what it means, what the kingdom means. Those of you who know me know that I like simple. So an eight word definition for kingdom. This comes from uh, the Gospel Coalition, um, and I, th I, I think it suits uh, rather nicely. Um, it comes from a, a, an author named Jeremy Treat, and he says that the, the kingdom is God's reign through God's people on or in God's place. God's reign through God's people in God's place. So what does that mean? Well, when we talk about God's reign, we, and when we talk about the kingdom, first and foremost, it's a statement about God. It's not a statement about us. Anytime we start to, 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 to water it down and talk about the kingdom being about us and rooted in us, we, we are getting off track. Right? The kingdom is, is about God. The kingdom is God's vision for the world reordered around the powerful love and grace of Jesus Christ. But in a world marred by sin, God's kingship is resisted. And it has been since Adam and Eve first believed the lie rather than the truth. 
And in God's kingdom, after the fall, his work has all been about, his kingdom work has all been about redemption. Redeeming what had fallen. His kingdom is not about the culmination of human efforts. It's about the glorious and powerful redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. So God's reign is wherever God is in charge in this world. And so God's reign, God's kingdom envelops this world. And he reigns through God's people. Yes, God is the creator king. He reigns over everything, but he reigns through his people. We see this in the Garden of Eden. The first thing he says to Adam and Eve, go, have dominion over, name the animals, work the, work the ground, multiply, fill the earth. You, to have, you are to reign. As image bearers of God, we are to reign. We are to have dominion. But again, that fall showed that we chose to seek our own path over the glory of God. And ever since sin has entered the world, God's kingdom project has at its heart a rescue mission for rebellious sinners, you and me. God's reign is a saving reign. See, sometimes we think the kingdom is about saving us solely from something. But church, think about what it also saves us for. Yes, we are saved from sin. Yes, we are saved from hell. But we are saved for something as well. We are saved from death for life. We are saved from shame and for glory. We are shamed from slavery and for freedom. We are shamed fr saved from sin and for following our Savior. We are saved from the kingdom of darkness and for the kingdom of light. We are saved from ourselves, from our brokenness, from our sinfulness. We are saved for good works. And those good works and those good words are what propels the gospel across the globe. It is God's reign through the church, God's people, over God's place. We think that Jesus is coming back just to redeem his people, just to reclaim the children uh, that have turned their back on him and then turned back to him. But it's bigger than that. You see, Jesus is not coming just to reclaim and to rescue people. He's coming also to redeem all of creation. And when we hold on to that, when we read in Revelation about a new heaven and a new earth, it takes on a deeper, a richer meaning. Because God is not just concerned about a small aspect of creation. He's coming to redeem all of it. The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. This is the kingdom. And Jesus is the redeemer for that kingdom. And we as a church, we, we follow after this Jesus who fulfills every kingdom promise and establishes his kingdom in a way that's different from anything anybody expected. Because it wasn't a warrior. It wasn't a, a, an army general. He came to build his kingdom with grace and with compassion. And this is the kingdom that we live in. This is the kingdom of God. So we are, we as a church are a community of believers who expect the king to come, 
but we are also a community of believers who eternally experience the kingdom because we live in it right now. Not fully, and we'll get to that in a second, but we live where God reigns. Sin is still present. It won't always be. But we live in the kingdom of God. How do we do that? If this is the kingdom, how do we live in this kingdom? Well, it's really pretty simple. And if we've been paying attention over the last nine weeks, Jesus has already told us. It's simple, but it ain't so easy. Jesus himself said, back in verse 24 of this same chapter, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is living in the kingdom in one sentence. And it also describes your journey of sanctification. Now, if you've been in church, you understand what that word means, sanctification, and you've at least heard it before. It's not a word that we use every day uh, in our job and in, in just regular conversation. Maybe we should, but we don't. But it's really one of those big churchy words that we like to throw out there to make ourselves seem like we're closer to arriving, that we're more knowledgeable, maybe that we're holier. But basically, big churchy words like sanctification and glorification and justification are all just words, big words, $5 words that remind us that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were saved. And as we live as disciples following after him, we are being saved. And when he returns, we will be saved. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. We are freed from all of the consequences of our sin. We are forgiven. We are secured for him. We are freed from the consequences of our sin. That's a big statement. No longer are, do we bear responsibility for our mess-ups, for the times that we have stepped out of God's will. We have been freed from our sin. And that's what happens when we are justified. Now, if you go clear to the other end of our walk, when Jesus calls us home, when he returns, we will be glorified. And this is going to be an awesome day because it will take our bodies, broken as they are, and transform them into something perfect. And here's the awesome thing. When you're justified, you're freed from the consequences of your sin. At the end, when we are glorified, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Try to wrap your mind around that just for a second to live in a world that does not have sin. That is a world that I want my kids to live in. That is the world that I want my little Coriander Claire to live in. That is the world that I want the guy who is addicted to pornography to live in. That is, a, the, the, that, that is the world that I want the, the man or the woman who has suffered abuse after abuse after abuse to live in, a world where sin does not even exist. It's not even an option on the menu. It doesn't even turn our head anymore because it no longer exists. That is the world that I want the cynic and the gossip and the liar and the murderer and the doubter 
the addict to live in where no sin even exists. Man, and that's that kingdom that we eagerly expect when the king comes. I cannot wait for that. But between that moment of justification and that moment of glorification, there is a lifetime of living in here. And that church is that big word where sanctification takes place. That, that big word that, that means that we are being transformed into something different. We've talked about how sin works before, how when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're a new creation. Well, that new creation still resides in a broken, sinful body, in a sinful world. So you have this battle going over, going, going back and forth between good and evil, good and evil. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in verse 12, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that that same veil remains unlifted. Because only God through Christ has taken it, it, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is sanctification, where we are being transformed degree by degree by degree into a more perfect image of Jesus Christ. And it will not be complete until the end. But I want you to notice something here. Notice who does this work. Notice where this effort, this power comes from. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit does this work in us. Our job is to let Him take control. This this daily, moment by moment, surrender to the Spirit's leading. It's, It's what we've talked about, the Spirit before and we talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where it says, don't quench the Spirit, but we have come, become experts at quenching the Spirit. We have become experts at multiple times a day saying no to where the Spirit is guiding us in conversation, in thought, in action, in direction. But how can we? How can we live this way when I can't even go a week, a day, an hour, without cussing, without lying, without cheating, without turning into to a website to see something that I ought not to be looking at. How can I do this? And Paul gives us the way to do this. Uh, if you go, still 2 Corinthians, but you go over uh, to, to chapter 10, he says in verse 4, he reminds us there that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, ready to punish every disobedience. Paul boils it down to moment by moment, every thought 
captive. When I know that I need to do something and I know what the end is supposed to be, Jill, that scares me because there's a lot of activity that has to take place from point A to point B. And I get scared at this process in here because there's no way that I can do that. Whether it's getting in in, in better physical shape and and losing weight or eating healthier or spending more time in the Word or, or removing myself from situations that I ought not be in, participating in things that I shouldn't be participating in. When I see the big picture, it scares the daylights out of me and it, it cripples me to inactivity. And Paul is saying, let's back up a little bit. Let's make this manageable. Let's take this moment by moment, thought by thought. And I pray that whether it's a sticky note on your, on your windshield, on your, on your fridge, on your mirror, that this, this idea of moment by moment sticks with us. Because what happens then is that we sit to see sanctification take root in our, in our, in our life. Unfortunately for us, sanctification is not a light switch process. Flip it on, flip it off. Flip it on, everything's great. Living in the dark, flip the switch, living in the light. Bright as can be. No. Sanctification is a process. From the day that you surrender to Jesus to the day that he calls you home or comes and gets you, it's a process of looking more like Jesus. And if we can back up and if we can take moment by moment, thought by thought, then that, that sin that we succumb to every moment will eventually become that sin that trips us up only once a day. And eventually that sin that we, that we, that we fall to daily becomes a sin that, that we battle with on a weekly basis and then a monthly basis. And we are looking more and more like the image of Jesus Christ that we should be. Now, Tony Foreman at 49 is a lot different from Tony Foreman at 15 and 16. The sins that I battled with at 15 and 16 are different than the ones that I battle at 49, 50. Right now, Satan's pretty wise, he's pretty clever, he's pretty relentless. So Tony Foreman at 49 and 50 still struggles. Satan has just morphed the way he comes after me. But I've changed, and that's sanctification. And that's what we should all strive to be after. Perfection is always out there, but church, we will never reach perfection until Jesus Christ comes back or calls us home. Our journey of sanctification is so much more about direction than it is perfection. Heading more and more to Jesus Christ. And those gaps between the sin that we struggle with becoming wider and wider and wider. That is sanctification. Where the sins that did control us no longer control us. Where they lose their power over us. Justification, we are freed from the consequences of sin. Glorification, we are freed from the very presence, existence of sin. In the middle, we are gradually freed from the power of sin over our lives if we relent to the Holy Spirit. Now, we typically go to a couple of different verses when we talk about our, our sin and our fleeing from sin. We usually go to a place like Hebrews chapter 12 uh, that says this. It says, therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, lay, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, keeping our focus on Jesus. And we focus on that word sin. And we, we're pretty good at knowing what sin is. We're not always so good. It's not always so easy to battle against it. But we have an idea of what it is. And we know that it's wrong, but we gloss over that and of and every weight. Now, those are two different things, so what is every weight? Well, every weight, as it sounds, because it sort of has a negative connotation, like you're wearing something on your shoulders that's, 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 making, that's, that's just putting pressure on you and, and making you weak and tired. It could mean that, but it could also mean good things. A weight could be good stuff from God that you have made the best stuff. It could be a gift from God that you have turned into a God. It could be an event on your calendar that constantly, consistently has you missing church and taking you away from opportunities to be about kingdom work. It could be the drive that has been instilled in you to succeed in your job that now has you elevating those relationships, guys, over the relationship that you have with your wife and you're no longer able to love her as Christ loved the church. It could come in the, back, in the form of a backhanded comment among friends where a wife takes a shot at her husband in jest. But in that moment, we're not giving him the respect that he deserves. A weight, yes, can be something bad. It can be something heavy. But a weight can also be anything that distracts us from the focus that we are to have. When we make good stuff from God, the best things. And Jesus reminds us in this section of Scripture that we have been talking about, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You see, your journey of sanctification will lead you over some rough road and treacherous terrain. And if you try to do it on your own, you will fail. There's no ifs, ands, ors, or buts about it. You will fail. Luckily, you've been granted access to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said himself, it's better for me to go so that the Spirit, the Helper, can come. Jesus himself knew that those 12 men who had studied under him for three years needed to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and to dwell in them and to lead them. The Holy Spirit is our key. Paul tells us that. Jesus tells us that. This book shows us and demonstrates that to us. My question to you is, have you granted access to the Holy Spirit? Don't look at the big picture. Just look at the moment by moment. Don't think about next week. Think about the next thought. And take every thought captive in obedience. It starts, this access of the Holy Spirit, it starts with surrender to Jesus. He sends the Spirit to dwell, to live in you. If you've not accepted Christ, I pray that today is your day of justification. 
that the day that you are freed from the consequences of sin, that today is the day that you begin your journey of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus until the day that you are glorified when he comes to call his church home. If you have not accepted Christ, I pray that today is that day. If you claim Christ as your Savior, how's your journey going? Are you looking more and more like Jesus every day? If you compare today, Tony Foreman, today, Chrissy Durham, today, Brett Powell, with November, same person, with 2020, same person, are you looking more and more like Jesus? Can you see a difference in your life? Don't compare yourself to anybody else in the room. Compare yourself. Your sanctification journey is you. It's about your transformation, about you becoming one degree at a time more like Jesus. Are you, can you see a difference in your life? If you can't, I feel pretty safe saying that you failed to give full access to the Holy Spirit in your life. I pray that today, if that's you, that you just open the doors to your heart. Let the Spirit reign. Give Him full access. If we truly, if we are truly living a life that pursues Jesus, then they're going to, people are going to be able to see it in our lives. We talk about loving God in the way that we worship together. We elevate him in praise. The, how we worship God on our own when we, have, when we have the radio in the car cranked up and we are just singing uh, loud. We talk about worship and we talk about loving God. We talk about loving people, how we are in this together as a community of believers and how we want to help each other mature in our walk by spending time together in fellowship and in God's word. But if we are truly the church that is living in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom now, and looking forward to the king to come and bring us into his final, perfect, complete kingdom, we're going to be a people who are about loving more people because we want as many people as possible to experience eternity in Jesus' presence, to be freed from the consequences of their sin, and to be forever freed from the presence of sin. The praise band is going to come up and we're going to sing a song. It's called Soon. And I love the words of this song. I don't remember us singing it here before, have we? But I want you to listen to the words, watch the words, and sing the words with your mouth and with your heart. Soon and very soon I'll be going to the place he has prepared for me. There my sin erased, my shame forgotten, soon and very soon. I will be with the one I love, with unveiled face I'll see him. There my soul will be satisfied, soon and very soon. Soon and very soon see the procession, the angels and the elders around the throne. At his feet I'll lay my crowns, my worship, soon and very soon. Though I have not seen him, my heart knows him well. Jesus Christ the Lamb, the Lord of heaven, soon and very soon.